Hello and welcome to MadeCast. This series is brought to you by HCMA Architecture and Design. I'm your co-host, Stephanie Pollock. And I'm your other co-host, Cody Johnson. This is Edmonton's Design Podcast, produced by MADE. MADE respectfully acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Salto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others. In this first episode, titled The Front Lines, Social Media's Influence on Design Today, we chat with New York design critic and author Alexandra Lang. Alexandra is a tour de force in design thinking and writing. Be sure to check out her website, alexandralang.net, and grab yourself one of or all of her books about design, children, writing, and critiquing. Alternatively, check out her articles, which regularly appear in the New York Times, City Lab, Curbed, and Dazine. Not to mention her recent appearance on our second favorite design podcast, 99% Invisible. In this episode, our conversation moves through the topics of informal use of social media by architects, the feedback loops embedded within social media, as well as trends and globalism in interior design. We conclude by briefly touching on the role of the mall, and Alexandra introduces us to her new book, scheduled to be released in the spring of 2022, Meet Me by the Fountain. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of MadeCast. I'd like to start off with a quick shout-out to HCMA Architecture and Design, RPK Architects, and GEC Architecture for supporting our little endeavor. This season, we dive into some architectural themes and topics with some really intelligent people, and, and I just can't wait, so let's get right into it. I'm your host, Cody Johnston, and I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie Pollock. We have our wonderful guest, Alexandra Lang. I won't try to introduce her, so... So I'm Alexandra Lang. I'm a Brooklyn-based design critic. I have a new book coming out next year called Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall, all about the history and future of shopping malls. And a lot of people know me for two of my other books. One is writing about architecture on how to write architecture criticism. And the other one is called The Design of Childhood, which is all about how blocks, playgrounds, schools, etc., shape children's lives. And I mean, besides uh, writing books, you're, you're very active in all the spheres of, of architecture and design dialogue. So appreciate you sitting down with us today. Sure, no problem. Our first question for you is, how do you interact with design and architecture with social media? Well, I mean, as you noted, I um, am very engaged in a lot of online conversations about about design. And I guess the my primary, like the primary venues in which I do that are Twitter and Instagram, both of which I joined a long time ago. And I feel like both of those are great platforms for kind of seeing new things and then seeing people's initial reactions to those new things and then sharing eventually like my own, hopefully like more considered opinions about those things. Do you think people are um, making their opinions based off other people's opinions more so on that? Like, you know, like you can follow the comment stream and, and you might slide into the majority group or anything like that. Or do you think it's sort of just information gathering? Oh, I think people, I mean, a lot of times, you know, chains can get so big that nobody even realizes like what the initial impetus was. And a lot of times writers know this better than anyone, like nobody clicks on the article. They're really just looking at on Twitter, the inline image um, or on Instagram, like the major image. So yeah, a lot of times the reactions can really be like pretty shallow, like pretty top of mind. But I don't think that that kind of reaction is necessarily bad. I mean, sometimes like that first reaction is kind of a snapshot of what the final reaction will be. Or 
or you can kind of see what like what do people take from this image and that's an indicator of like larger patterns in the field like i feel like nowadays you know there's a lot of discussion about the way landscape is used on buildings like green buildings not in the sense of energy consumption but green buildings in the sense of buildings that have like lots of trees on the outside i, I was just honestly looking this morning looking at an image of this new mad architects building in denver that has this like rift down it have you guys seen this already no, <laughs> anyway no. it's just like okay so we had a mountain building now we're gonna have a rift building you know yada 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 but but seeing that image you feel like okay this image is in dialogue with a lot of other images like even if i didn't read the article even if i didn't delve into the details it's not necessarily so shallow to say like okay this is an architecture that's being sold on the rendering i mean they're actively trying to you know get investors for this project and also it is in dialogue both with mad's previous work and with like the work of other people like big and you know every and thomas heatherwick who have been like putting trees on the outside of buildings for the past several years so that gut reaction like isn't necessarily as shallow um as a first impression like it it's about a buildup of imagery and a way that architecture is being sold now so it's not necessarily so wrong to roll your eyes and say oh my god like here's another way we can put trees on the outside of buildings like what will they think of next yeah yeah that's i mean i, I can imagine like the mad architects um the whole i can just imagine the whole the whole design and it's probably <laughs> yeah, you don't, like you didn't actually need to look at the picture my description probably gave you enough and you can you can look at the picture after we talk and tell me if like your mental image was correct or not yeah yeah i wanted to ask about the impact of social media and, and the globalism and so mm. that makes me think of like is that design very colorado or is that design you know any, anywhere where there's a fault line can they just plunk that design down or social media how has it affected globalism? Well, I think it's a real, I guess I think of it as a reflection rather than um, an inflection of globalism. I mean, it, it connects more people in more ways every day. And it means that, you know, images of built and unbuilt work from different parts of the world are in greater circulation. So yeah, like the new the new trends in China aren't necessarily so different than the new trends in the US, except I mean, in a lot of ways they are because there are different financing structures and like different rates of construction and, and all of these other things. Like the, the interesting thing about architecture, I think, is that there are still all these like you know, physical and economic limiting factors. So it's like, yes, imagery circulates, yes, trends circulate, but in the end, um, you know, the cost of concrete, the cost of steel, like how easy it is to get something permitted, like really like on the ground factors um, affect what you're gonna build ultimately. And that's where the kind of rendering versus reality situation um, comes into play. So I think, yes, there are more practices practicing worldwide. Yes, we can see more imagery of buildings from other places, but it's not like architecture is can ever completely be divorced from like its local context. And if there's like this, this could lead into like a, I mean, when we talk about like vernaculars or like any, any sort of local, local level design, I, I I'm, I'm hesitant to say that social media is erasing vernaculars because I think we've been doing that since since we found out how to build efficiently. You know, because us in Edmonton, we are we're very cold. It's very cold up here a lot of the year, and very hot. But it's mostly very cold. Um, and then you go to somewhere like Arizona. Like I went to school at Taliesin in in Scottsdale, and the houses they look different, but they're so similar. They ignore context generally and and yeah i guess i feel like i feel like social media is really accelerating that do you have any thoughts on like on how social media is influencing vernaculars and like local sense of identity because of that globalism yeah i mean i feel like like social media's influence on say domestic architecture is quite strong and i i would also pair it though with um you know 
TV and like HGTV's influence on home design. Like I, I think those two things have in a lot of cases gone together and created kind of, you know, waves of preferences. Right now it's for the farmhouse look. So you get farmhouses in Arizona and you get farmhouses in Edmonton and, and you get farmhouses in regions that actually have a lot of farms. Actually, maybe Edmonton has a lot of farms. I don't know for sure. We're a bit farmy. Yeah, but but the farm look would be different in Edmonton than it would be in Iowa because of, you know, climate factors. So I think that um, I think that social media kind of creates a pool of desirability that people in a lot of different places like end up um being attracted to. And so that ends up fueling like local markets and new developments to build more houses in a trendy style that's not necessarily connected to the region. However, you know, ultimately, I, I think a lot of those houses are going to kind of fail as houses if they don't take like regional things into consideration. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of like older houses in Edmonton that have been adapted in various ways to deal with the cold conditions. Um, like maybe there are a lot of mud rooms, maybe the overhangs are built a certain way. Like I'm just kind of guessing here um, from like my own experience in Vermont and you know, like how everyone puts up their snow fence in November. And so like, unless like you're gonna pretty quickly see those like lookalike farmhouses either adapted to the region or like maladapted and like abandoned by the region unless the builders can put in some of those features that make them, I don't know, kind of more regionalized. So yeah, I mean, I think that people, like I think the taste is, if not global, at least like nationalized in a lot of places, uh, but when you're dealing with something architectural and something in the real world, like there have to be changes made that will eventually like make, say, a vernacular version of that like regionalized or nationalized trend. Yeah, it makes me think like, sure, we can have farmhouse styles everywhere and, and it's okay for people to be into farmhouse styles in uh, urban context, for example. But if it's not working with the, the amount of snow you get or sun you get then you're failing. Yeah. Right. Right. Like if you have a farmhouse with big windows in Arizona, you're going to need to like put a film on those windows or you're going to need to plant a lot of trees around your house to shade your house, or you're going to need to pay pay like a million dollars a year for your air conditioning bill. So, I mean, I think people like things, but maybe like one thing that criticism can do, or, you know, like kind of one thing that people writing about architecture can do is talk to people about the trade-offs required to have those things, like wherever they want them. Yeah. We had been thinking about trends as well. And it's all, it's like, it's right adjacent to everything we've been talking about, but trends seem to be coming and going faster. Do you think this is true? And like, and what does this mean for especially things like interior design. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this a little bit last night because I've been, I feel like I've been interviewed and written, also written a lot of articles about Instagram and architecture. And my basic point of view is that Instagram is not influencing like capital A, like large scale architecture nearly as much as it's influencing um hospitality architecture and then to a lesser degree domestic architecture so like the the places where instagram trends are most rapidly snapped up and shared on instagram is places like restaurants and hotels and airbnbs that are essentially places that people are spending a short amount of time in but the businesses get a tremendous amount of free advertising from people like snapping their picture and sharing at their spaces. And so they add in elements that they know are Instagram friendly, like cool tiled floors or cool wallpaper and good lighting in the bathrooms or like a feature wall at the opening of the restaurant with the restaurant name that you can pose in front of. So, you know, it's kind of like one of those like party setups, like selfie stations, but all year round. So I, I mean, I feel like, and 
is that bad? Like to me, that seems in line with like the history of hospitality architecture, which has always had to like turn itself old over faster because it like is part of the fashion cycle. Um, you know, hotels, restaurants, like just get much harder wear and they keep up with the trends in ways that we would never do in our homes or we shouldn't do in our homes because they're supposed to be built for kind of like longer lasting use. Um, you know, people don't get new sofas all the time, but I don't know how often I suspect, you know, hotel lobbies have to get new sofas like constantly because they just get worn out. Um, and I think, you know, the inst the way Instagram influences home design, I think is is more in the realm of vignettes, things like um, like seasonal wreaths and like new front door mats and kind of like doing up your front door for every holiday. Like now you see on TikTok, there are all these TikToks of people like dancing in front of their front door like they're on their front porch that's all done up for the holiday. So it's like you're adding the motion element to what's essentially like the Instagram static visual element. Um, and so like having, having a cute front door, having like a front hallway with the table and a mirror that is all kind of like arranged with the perfect little dish for everybody's keys and mail. Um, you know, having a bookshelf in the living room where your books are color coded like these things are not actually deeply influencing the space of houses, but they're influencing like the way say one wall in each room is arranged so that, you know, you can post it on Instagram and your friends will say, ah, oh, that's so cute. Like now I want to do that. I mean, so, you know, for better or worse, it is like a performative thing, but I don't think that it's changing the design of houses in the same way as like this constant turnover and, and looking for novelty changes the design of hospitality spaces. I think too, like, um, so I am an interior designer. So yeah. I, I will have clients that say like, well, I don't want something too trendy. And it's <laughs> like, okay, I, I understand that. But I also think that, you know, design is reflective of the times. So like if, you know, if you see an interior from the seventies, you know, it's from the seventies. So it's kind of also impossible to like not design something with the time with it because we're designing right now. So it's going to have some context to the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the seventies because, well, I was born in the seventies and I happen to love a lot of that aesthetic. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> And I do think like I follow a lot of accounts on Instagram that are retro accounts like there's a 70s interiors account and an 80s interiors account and they're totally fun to see so and I do I think that part of what can be fun about these platforms is kind of the alternative imagery that gets put back in wider circulation you know people scanning all of those like house beautiful from the 1970s books mm -hmm. like might make somebody choose you know a corduroy sofa instead of a pink velvet sofa right and like that's not a bad thing it's just a different form of circulation people used to buy more magazines people used to buy more of those big um house books like Terrence Conran's house book is a classic that has all these amazing 70s interior. And sometimes it's fun to look back through those and be like, okay, which of these ideas are just like appalling and which of these ideas are fun? And probably, I mean, I don't know about, like, it's probably more fun for you when your clients bring in some of these like alternative, quirky, like not so trendy ideas along with like whatever is kind of happening in the mainstream right now. Cause then they can get interiors that are more personal. Totally. Yeah, okay. totally. I think, I think we're on the right track if we're deciding between a corduroy couch or a pink velvet couch. I think, I think <laughs> I love no corduroy. Reason. Like I'm like, yeah. very into yeah. corduroy. I'd be, I'd be happy with either. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, those textural things. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I, I, you know, I was just thinking, um, I, you look at there's there's there was an article in Art Daily a while, a while ago about like interior design trends that will shape the next decade, and then there was um, a a little it was it was called vignettes last night in Edmonton a little gala release of, of little shop spaces and they're retail spaces and restaurant spaces so they are those spaces that can be super trendy because the lifespan is not very long and seeing what happened there like the monochrome pastels arches 
all of that is exactly what the Arc Daily article was about. And it's and it's not it's not a, a knock at anybody of, of the designers at all. It's it's literally like what what you guys were saying. It's it's I think sort of embedding our time and our style right now. And I think that's okay. I think it's I think it's good to push that stuff. And as much as we'd like to be super original and every idea is our idea, we can't do that anymore. There's no there's it's very hard to be original. We're, it's all just gestalts of, of you know times past. So it was just a funny observation that we're exactly on trend here, I guess. <laughs> right. Except if they're saying these are the trends for the next five years and like everybody in Edmonton is already on it, then like I think like five years from now, we're going to be somewhere else. I mean, it's funny you bring up the art. The art just really, really cracked me up because like to me, those I mean, you're, you're, that curved arch is very much a Los Angeles thing that comes out of like stucco based mm-hmm like Spanish colonial revival architecture. And it's hilarious to me that people in Edmonton, or I know there's, you know, there's a designer that I follow um, on Instagram who's in Michigan who put like arch doorways into her house. And it like something like that, that's an architectural element that is born out of some of like the structural and cosmetic needs of like a particular way of building houses. And just to see that kind of applied everywhere. um, I guess I just find it amusing because it gets so, it gets so cut off from its original purpose and its original like architectural meaning. So yeah, I think that everyone who's putting an arch in their house in wherever like in five years is probably going to be like hmm you know maybe it wasn't so bad to have like a a rectangular door there that actually closed (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that that's exactly that vernacular piece earlier you know we're we're stealing vernaculars and things like that and and it's trending and it's fun like just one element of the vernacular right and then that's where it starts to get weird (laughs) yeah that's that's perfect. That's exactly what uh, my next question was going to be was the accessibility of design. I, f- I feel like it's it's making it's not necessarily making collage architecture. When I say collage architecture, you know, I love the collage rendering style. I love that that way of creating ideas of, of putting things together. But I feel like that's what style might be becoming with with all of this accessibility. So do you feel that like do you feel that as well? And like how is that affecting design? Is it, is it destroying the purity of design or is it, is it enhancing design because it lets people in Edmonton feel like they're in LA for that, that time they're in the room? Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I didn't really buy like the purity argument anyway. Right. I mean, it, it's something, you know, like I got my start as, you know, an architectural historian and I studied modernism. And even when I was studying modernism, um, you know, there was this kind of line that modernism was about truth to materials, but you see very quickly when you get like delve into it at all, that like nobody was being true to materials. Like there was always a symbolic element to architecture. Um, and this was a line, but like it was never really enacted in practice. So I don't think you can be pure, but I think you, um, I think you can be thoughtful and I think you can like, want to learn about where these things come from. I mean, I think the thing that frustrates me about like like continuing on the arch theme is like, it's totally fine to have an arch in your house in Edmonton, but I do think it's better if you understand where the arch is coming from and like what the original purpose of those arches was in like the houses that they're taken from because you know like architecture is in part like a utilitarian art form and so if you're just kind of smacking them in your house willy-nilly because you like the look um it can create all of these problems but if you understand like oh the arch was this great way to get from the kitchen to the dining room but it was actually usually built in a thick wall so like the inner walls of the house were more insulated blah blah i mean you know there are all these kind of hidden functions and i think you know it behooves anyone who's building a house or like getting a house designed for them to understand like the functional aspects as well as the visual aspects and again like i think that's where criticism can come in. Like not criticizing people, you know, 
for being stupid or making bad choices, but saying like, look, like it's actually going to help you to have more information before you make this choice. Do you think that the public notices or do you think that it, <laughs> that it matters or like, like, I mean, uh, I guess it's like the, that's like an age old question of designers, <laughs> like, because we care, does it matter to everybody else? I mean, no, I don't think most of the public notices. I, I think that people who are visually oriented are in a minority and have always been in a minority. Like, I, you know, I'm a writer, but I really consider myself a visual person. I feel a lot of kinship to the designers that I write about because like my head is filled with pictures. Um, and I have talked to enough people in my life to know that like most people's heads are not filled with pictures. Most people like kind of take visual things at face value. But like, I think all we can do is like keep trying to explain like what these visual things mean and where they come from. I mean, like, sure, yeah, that's a lifetime project, but it's a necessary project and you'll get to some people and not others. Um, I mean, in a lot of my writing now, I'm writing about public space and trying to connect like the physical aspects of public space to, you know, politics and economic policy and again like I feel like a lot of people don't get it but I guess I have to just keep beating that drum or like you know we're never going to get the cities that we need we're never going to get all of the physical supports that people need um and the same really goes for home design like you're not you're not going to get a house that supports the life that you want to leave and is comfortable and works for everyone in the family unless you can start making some of these connections between like how you design your kitchen and how you actually like eat your meals and like what social dynamics you have within like your nuclear family. Right. I guess I, I would add, um, like I do more commercial design now, but I did work in like kitchens for a while when I was first out of school and we have like a very big Indian culture here in um, Alberta. And so, yeah, like the way that those families built their houses is very different from the way that like a lot of other developers in the city um, built their homes because they have, I don't know what the exact term is that they call it, but they basically have like a small butler kitchen off of their main kitchen where they'll like cook foods that are maybe a little bit more strong smelling and mm -hmm. they have, they'll have like a vent, like more um, vents in that area that like go to the outside. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, to, to me as a designer, like the best thing I, that I can do is like the functionality is there but it's not so obvious like it's not obvious to the people that are experiencing the space but like me as the designer I know like hey that's hidden around there or like mm -hmm. yeah I don't know that's always like the most exciting thing to me in design is when it's like not obvious to the people that are using it but to someone who's like trained and looking for it can then see it mm -hmm. yeah and that also means that like you have been listening or like yeah. you've absorbed that there are different cultural norms for cooking, like, you mm -hmm. know, honestly, like different equipment required. Like I've heard a similar thing about there's um there's a suburb outside of L.A. called Arcadia, where there are a lot of Chinese and Chinese American families who do like very high heat wok cooking. And they mm -hmm. often have that separate kitchen with the vent because, um, you know, it would set off the smoke alarms in mm -hmm. a typical suburban house designed for i don't know white people cooking whatever you mm -hmm. want to say yeah. um, and and it's like great that they are now building that in for the population that lives in that city and like you know mm -hmm. kind of tweaking tweaking the norms to suit um the norms of a different and like growing suburban culture so yeah no that's great it, it's funny kitchens um People are really always interested in talking about kitchens. I just did an interview for another, for a food website about galley kitchens and people kind of moving back towards wanting to have separate kitchens, realizing that they didn't want their whole house to smell like what they were cooking, realizing during the pandemic that it was nice to like get away from the, from the have, family have, for a little have bit. Have a space not right. connected to everyone. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, that's a pandemic change, um, but it's also potentially, I think, you know, kind of a trend for a the future. So it's like you have like a big cultural change and then that gets filtered down through probably like the next 10 years of like home and kitchen design in different ways 
as people start to just reconsider like what actually like makes them comfortable. Yeah. Hmm. This is actually super, it's, it's, it's super literal because um, I want to ask about feedback loops on and in social media and you guys are talking about, um, you know, post-occupancy studies, basically like going into places after you've designed them and saying, Hey, what, what can we do different? And I think that that's probably a, a piece of, you know, the profession that we don't do enough. Um, really going in there afterwards, a year afterwards, 10 years afterwards and saying, what's going on? How can we, how can we be different? And, and growing that way, I, I feel like a lot of architects don't try to grow that way. So do you think that the, the, the feedback loops now embedded with social media, maybe not so much in the post-occupancy range of like after it's been designed, like I suppose you could follow a hashtag buildings falling apart or whatever, and you could figure out where problems are in, in our buildings these days, but more so on the design end and like trying to make a building for a community. Like um, Mark Kushner did a talk in 2015 where he, he um, there was a community building in New Jersey going up and he was talking about posting it uh, to social media beforehand and how doing that embedded it within the community already. Like people, people really saw it as part of the community. And then when it came into reality, it was like, it was people already knew it and felt comfortable with it and stuff like that. But I'm wondering if there's an opportunity for feedback loops in that process of saying, you know, we do formal community engagements a lot, but not all the time. And I'm thinking that, you know, here's our schematic design. What does the world think of it? And then having people comment on it um, could go good or bad. Do you think that there's opportunities for feedback loops in social media communications? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I think there, I feel like really you're talking about two different things. Like one of them is that I think there's been a lot of recent like thoughtful reconsideration of community engagement and people deciding that the only way for community engagement to really work for like a broad like demographic within a community is for it to like basically be done on numerous platforms that like community meetings get one kind of people or one sort of people um zoom meetings get another sort social media like more casual like you know twitter and instagrams are requests get another sort of people. And it's really important to reach out on all of those platforms if you truly want to, you know, cover your demographic basis and get people who um, may have less time, like may have childcare responsibilities, may work at night, you know, like the whole nine yards. So yeah, I think that social media can be a tool in community engagement, but it can't be the only tool just like you know, 6 p.m. in-person meetings can't be the only tool because like, when have I ever gone to a 6 p.m. in-person meeting? Like that's not really something that fits my lifestyle. Um, the other thing is though, I do think that social media and especially Instagram skew towards the positive. Like even, like even when I go and see a project that I don't like a lot, say like little island in new york which is kind of ridiculous like thomas heatherwick designed um park in new york city like when i post photos on instagram of it like they're pretty photos they look good people respond and say oh cool i want to go there and so i i think that there is just like a built-in kind of positivist aspect to like sharing images sharing photos and the whole vibe of Instagram that doesn't necessarily make it the best platform for them like sharing post-occupancy downsides or more critical comments. So it's a good way to get attention, but I think you would probably, you would have to, you would have to figure out a different arrangement to truly get um, quality feedback from Instagram. And like when things start breaking down five years later, like that's not what people are sharing. Like, I don't know where they're sharing that. Maybe they're sharing that on like next door or like community lift serves, but like that's where like the harsh criticism comes in. And I think that's much harder for architects to access. Yeah. I had a professor who was involved in the, the Seattle library. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then she went back for a post-occupancy study and, and it, it makes me think all the time that that there, even even with that, there's so many 
you have to go at different times and you have to ask different people. Like if, if she's just going to go there and ask the maintenance staff, she can get one answer. But if she goes there and like, they're going to say, oh, this, this sucks and this sucks and this sucks because yeah. they're maintenance staff and they deal with the issues. But if you go there and deal with the public that's there, they're going to say, oh, I love it because of this. But also you probably have to go around there and talk to people who aren't in it and say, why aren't you going in here? And it, it's just like, I guess your point is that it, it, it unravels and you have to, you have to like any good survey yeah. Check your data. Right. Exactly. And I mean, it's great that you brought up the maintenance staff because I think um, I just wrote this piece for Bloomberg City Lab on um, the the term care and how more people are using care to talk about like how architecture like should be designed and how urban projects should engage with the cities. And part of that is maintenance, like designing things so that they can be well maintained over time. And you as a designer like cannot know how to do that unless you are interviewing the maintenance people from the beginning like an example of this that i've used in the past just kind of from architecture history is um the crow island school in winneka illinois which does, was designed by eliel and aero saarinen is a very like famous early modernist school and um around the bottom of like basically the um where the floor meets the wall is a curved piece of tile so that when the maintenance staff comes around and like swabs it with their mops, you won't get a line on the wall of sort of like semi-clean, semi-dirty water. And that is a design detail that's like super well thought out and only came out of, um, you know, the Saarinen team actually talking to the maintenance staff of of the other schools in Winneka at the time. So like little things like that, like little thoughtfulnesses like that can really make a huge difference long-term. And that needs to be yet yeah, one of the questions that architects are asking. But like, that's not glamorous. That's not really like a social media question or answer. <laughs> no, but that is, that's, that's, I mean, at our firm, we do a lot of healthcare stuff and quite yeah. frankly, cleanliness is huge and and i think you're, you're kind of describing like a cove base which is somewhat normal yes, practice that is now. the term i was trying to get yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it is somewhat normal practice now but yeah i'm curious like it's it's sort of like we still don't ex we still don't really understand why it feels like you know like like it doesn't seem that common it seems common in my hospitals perhaps and maybe some seniors facilities but but it's still not commonplace and, and these guys figured it out 50 years ago by talking yeah. to maintenance staff and we're still rejecting it or ignoring it or, or just simply not hearing about it. Yeah. And so there's, there's yeah. a disconnect there, but. Yeah. And the like post COVID, I think the cleanliness, cleanliness levels that, you know, hospitals <laughs> and senior centers have like long been supposed to achieve really need to be applied more places well cleanliness but really more air circulation so like will we start to see those design elements filtering more into any congregate setting you know community center schools all of that like hopefully yes because even like without our new like disease awareness like it would probably be better healthier for everybody to like have things be maintained to that level, have them be built with easily maintainable, cleanable materials like all the time. We know we know now where dirt hides. We can we can avoid that. <laughs> so let's do that. Yeah. 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 You build it in and then you don't have to worry about it. I mean, like that's the thing about so many of these things. Like it's actually gonna be easier in the long run for everybody if you yeah. think about it at the beginning. As an observer of architects and, and someone in the design industry, um, have we been using social media right so far? <laughs> um, no, I'm just laughing because I can't remember how many years ago now I wrote a piece about how architects were using social media all wrong, which was probably like my most popular piece ever, which is, it's always funny when you like, you write something like kind of off the top of your head, because you're in a bad mood that day. And then it's like, oh, okay, like forever, I'm going to get this question. Um, so is that how, the Dark Ingles? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was on Dezine, um in like 2013, 2014, anyway, a while ago. Um, so our, yeah, I do think that architects are using social media better. I mean, like most architects have at least like tasked somebody with in their office with like 
creating a, an account for their office that like shares pictures of new things. But I mean, as I said in that original article, I think there are a lot of different ways that architects could use social media. Like the accounts that I tend to like more are people who are willing to share work that they like or work that they find inspirational that's not their own. Like I follow an account, I think it's Rural Office. So they do a lot of like very high quality contemporary rural buildings, like lots of, you know, barn roofs and things like that. But their account often shares um, different pictures of things that are kind of within their aesthetic, but that are like from all over the world across all time periods. So there's like a common ground to it, but it's not just showcasing their work. And like, I love that because it shows us like a strong personal aesthetic without just like showing your own stuff all the time, like an advertisement. I also follow a guy named Brent Buck, who has a um, was a practice based in Brooklyn, and he just shares a lot of like site visit photos, like always, you know, like very beautifully framed. <laughs> like it's very, it's not messy, but it's just like okay, like what does the spiral staircase look like before you put the plaster on? Like that's fun to see. So, I, I mean, I've always said like I think like it shows if you're having a good time with social media. It shows when you are having a personality about it and not just using it as kind of an advertising or broadcast mechanism. And I will always be more attracted to accounts like the, that, that, you know, just have a personal side. Makes us remember that we're humans together. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see this at writing, you know, showing a little bit of weakness and vulnerability is incredibly powerful. And I think, you know, yeah, acting like you're a human on social media is also incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think I mean, that's... like we like I mean, I'll speak for myself, Cody, but like not every day am I going to a finished project and seeing what it looks like. There there are so many thousands of steps in between from where you start to when you get there that I mean, if we really want to share authenticity about the industry, it's that there, it's a long road to get to a finished project. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the like most destructive things about both shelter magazines and like shelter TV is mm -hmm. people really have this sense of like instantaneousness. And like today I decided to build a house tomorrow. I'm picking the tile the next day I'm moving in. And like, yeah. if you're in the construction industry at all, like, you know, it's just not like that at all. I mean, my, my husband's a residential architect and like, we have a townhouse in Brooklyn and it look, took three years from start to finish to get the whole thing done. Now we've been living in it for 14 years and like a lot of stuff is breaking. Like we need to do all this stuff again. And like, that really does not seem as fun. You know, and like, yeah. like nobody's showing pictures of that. And my husband doesn't, you know, seem to necessarily want to deal with it. But like, like, that's the reality of construction. It's like, yes, it takes a long time. Things wear out. Um, I think that's tricky to portray, but like a little bit of day in the life. Like yeah. I'm starting, like, this is day one of this project. And then like six months later, you're like, okay, we're at six months. Still not done. <laughs> like, I feel like that's helpful. I yeah. mean, people need to know or they're going to have unrealistic expectations and they're going to drive their architects crazy. Yeah, that makes me think of, it makes me think that that is sort of a new horizon within the social media architecture world is, you know, like I think back to like the Julius Shulman photos and those types of like really iconic things, like really curated experiences. And that's all that people knew about architecture for a long time. And now I think with social media, we have we have that opportunity to, as you say, make a first draft of history on social media. Right. So, yeah. So I, 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 I think it's like, I think it's a really good opportunity. And that's maybe a nugget of like this whole social media world is that like, we have this opportunity now to be human beings and to be um, messy if we, mm -hmm. if we want to be, um, because I think it was sort of black turtlenecks, capital A architecture, like we are here and you are here public, you know, I'm, I'm doing things on the video that people, but you know, architects trying to be above everybody else and, and being the, the dictator of, of worlds. I think that's got to go. 
And I think part of that messiness is also part of the ongoing discussion about how can we tell like a truer story about how architecture actually gets made and that it's, you know, like not just one great man. I mean, sorry, you said you went to Taliesin and like, it's, yeah. it's like all about like the Frank Lloyd Wright model is like really, really outdated, but it's still being applied to, you know, people in practice today. And so how can we talk about like the 10 people that worked on the design team? Like how can the people on the design team feel like they have their own voice can like claim their part without having to claim the whole, like all of this is, yeah, like kind of cracking open architecture and making it more messy. And I just, I think that's really important for the profession um, moving forward to be able to, you know, attract like diverse people to join, attract like diverse clients, just like show the reality of it and open itself up to change and um, yeah, the newness in the world. Do you think that we are getting closer to understanding the public or, or maybe, maybe that question's even off base, but, but I feel like there's that, that intimacy with social media. And, and if we're going to make it real, if we're going to make our lives real on social media as, as designers and architects, do you think that, that we're getting closer to understanding what the actual public is about and, and like more and more conversations happening? And then like in that, I'm thinking our Pinterest boards and and whatever else replacing the designer you know like like this is sort of sort of two questions i guess going on there but I, i'm thinking that like as we're becoming more on the plane of, of the people it also makes our work more accessible which might have and there's this whole diy movement going on especially with covid but are people looking to lose the designer for certain things and, and try to you know because they, they can source things from social media too yeah, I do think that's two, I do think that's two questions. I mean, the first one is like, I don't, I don't think we can ever really like understand the public as a whole, partially because there are so many different publics and you really, um, like as we were talking about before with community engagement, like you have to target the like specific community and the specific concerns like for the place you're working, like for the project that you're working on. And like, it, it's always gonna be arrogant to assume you can speak for anyone else. Um, and, like, and like, that's something that architects in general have to get away from. I mean, like, are designers replaceable? I mean, I don't really think so. Like, I think Pinterest is a great tool for communicating like, visual ideas between like a client and an architect or a client and a contractor. I mean, I was saying before, like a lot of people don't think visually, like they could never draw or describe what they wanted, but actually collecting pictures on Pinterest can be like a really powerful communication method because it's, it's like they've, they see something they like. And if, if you have a board with like 10 pictures of things that they like, like, you can get a vibe, like you'll be that much closer to being able to design what they want. I mean, yeah, I don't really see like Pinterest or like the many, many like home fix it videos on YouTube, like as a threat, um, because there are always things that are going to be too complicated for most people to do. I think the, the benefit could be um, more people understanding the complexity and like understanding their own limits. Like, yeah, like there are some things like hanging new shelves that you can teach yourself how to do from a YouTube video. But um, if you want to completely refit your kitchen and you don't have any carpentry skills, like that's going to be pretty difficult and like things will go wrong. So, yeah. Halfway through calling calling designers and contractors to help. Yeah, I don't know. Like maybe you guys have experience with people who are like, I started this myself and then like... <laughs> I realized that it was never going to happen. <laughs> so I guess my one last question would be centered around the, the whole globalism and, and that type of thing. But it's also about the human perceptions of where they're at in their world. And, and people always people have been having a lot of conversations lately about unhealthy relationships with social media. 
and young teens and things like that and, and trying to trying to be a certain thing. And so if we take the analogy and apply it to design, do you think that the, the fantasization of architecture and design on social media, I mean, aside from designers being human beings on there and, and assuming only highly curated, beautiful, beautiful stuff is mm-hmm. on social media, is that toxic? And I'm thinking especially for places like Edmonton where we're a smaller city and, and there's always this emigration to bigger and better. And like, like I say, we don't have a design school, so people have to go away to become an architect here. And then, and then there's maybe some reason to come back, but is there, is there some toxicity with the fantasization of designs on social media for, for cities or places of people? Um, yeah, I think definitely. I guess I usually categorize the toxicity as being kind of, I'd say, environmentally irresponsible. Because I think sort of like too many images of like thin people, fit people, et cetera, on social media can, you know, cause people to have like disordered eating, like too many pictures of like perfect living rooms and bookshelves on social media can cause people to have a disordered relationship to stuff and to like constantly be wanting to like get rid of stuff and buy new stuff and like accessorize. And I think it can create really like unhealthy buying cycles. Like there's um, again, another like interior designer who I follow on Instagram is um, you know, right now is in the middle of posting like, blog post after blog post about decorating for the holidays and what strikes me especially like this year is like how much stuff she's Mm -hmm. suggesting that people buy to like make sure that their house is decorated for the holidays and also that like the stuff itself is tied into some other trends so whereas five years ago when you decorated for the holidays like it might have been red and green. I'm talking about Christmas mostly here. It might have been red and green. Now, like everything is super beige. Like now we're doing like minimalist Christmas trees. So it's like beige and brown and like very pale green, like paper Christmas trees for your mantelpiece, et cetera. So it's like your holiday decorating gets caught up in this fashion cycle. And like, this is like, you know, giant bins full of stuff that you buy and put out once a year. And like, do you need that? Like, you know, kind of whatever happened to just like having a Christmas tree and having family ornaments, et cetera. So I think, I mean, that's an extreme example, but I think the same things happens when people are trying to like make their bookshelves look perfect, you know, find the perfect space. Like these, in most people's houses, these are utilitarian spaces and they have to do work. Like they have to store your books that you actually read and use. And so trying to make them look picture perfect at the same time can create just really unhealthy buying patterns where you're buying things for the looks and not for the utility. So yeah, I, I do think um, like imbibing, let's say too many pictures of perfect houses that don't actually have to be used and like will be dismantled after the shoot can lead people to spend too much time and money on basically disposable objects. Yeah consumerism and, and all of, all yeah, of those things yeah. that are yeah. and we mean we really like <laughs> we have to like we as i would say like north americans like have to stop buying so much stuff because it's really destructive <laughs> do you think that the that same thinking applies to cities like it's it's interesting that you're in you're in brooklyn you're in new york and we're in edmonton which is almost polar opposites on on like international understandings and sort of, you know, New York is, is very desirable and hot and fashionable and, and it's, it's a intensely global city. Do you think that there is that, that unhealthy relationship within cities? Like I'm thinking of how can people be proud of, you know, for, for like example, how can people be proud of their bodies? And then thusly, how can people be proud of their cities and where they're from? And yeah. does this social media highlighting everything make it worse? I think it doesn't have to. I mean, like I, like before the pandemic, I did a lot of traveling and I mostly traveled where people invited me, which sometimes would be like non-global cities, like fairly random places or whatever. And I guess I always tried to, you know, before I went, I would like 
look up oh like what are like the cool modernist buildings in this city and like I was often invited by architecture people so they would want to like show off the best architecture in their city and I would Instagram all of that and like a lot of times I was getting you know feedback like oh I never knew that x like had any modernist buildings and whatever and like that made me feel really good because I'm definitely someone who believes that there's interesting architecture everywhere and like I'm sure I could have an amazing time if I ever came to Edmonton. Like I would have to go to the West Edmonton Mall, but I would <laughs> want to like find I would want to find other things as well. So it's like I was always just trying to like share my joy and discovery and like not be snobby about it. Like I I personally like never thought that there was only like good architecture in New York. And so it's like, let me go to these other places and like become a conduit for other people to understand that but like I think you know people who live in those places can do that too um I really love this Twitter account called Midwest Modern which is run by a guy named Josh Lipnick and he um basically like of his own free will and all his own time like goes to all of these smaller midwestern cities and photographs them and then shares the photos on twitter and like he just finds the most amazing stuff and i feel like any you know any of you can do that anywhere and like is there an edmonton modern account like it would be so fun to just see that and like i'm the kind of person that will follow one of those accounts from any city because i learned so much and i think people learn more about their own cities and digging into like, oh, like who was this guy in the 1960s who built all the movie theaters? Like there's so many stories. So yeah, I mean, I'm putting, like that's my positive spin on it. Like there are things in your city, wherever you live that are really cool and have amazing stories. And like the, the benefit of social media platforms is if you photograph them, if the photographs are nice, like you can also be part of this global conversation. Yeah, I think I think all of this ties into like um, certain things to watch out for when using social media and interacting with it of, of being a human being and, and not not falling victim to um, the other world where you where you think you're you're not part of it and and yeah, yeah. I mean I don't I don't really like I don't like the victim narrative because I feel like it's almost too easy. Like I don't like. I don't feel victimized by social media. Like, I don't feel like I'm only seeing like the same five things in my algorithm. So like, I know it's possible to like carve like a world that actually reflects at least some aspect of your real self out of social media. Um, like maybe, like maybe it's harder than I think. And like, maybe there are downsides to it, but I do think it's possible and it can bring like all of these benefits as well. Yeah, it's your, I think it's your perception too, like what you're telling yourself it is, is what it will be. Yeah, yeah. Like when I read stories that just sort of casually say like, well, of course we're all slaves to the algorithm. I'm like, really? Like, I don't feel like that. Like maybe that means that like I'm completely brainwashed, but like I kind of don't think so. So like just, you know, don't let yourself be a slave to the algorithm. Like think about what you really like, you know. Conscious scrolling. Yeah. 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 I mean, I doom scroll as much as the next person, but I also do other things. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also like step away and, you know, like bake some bread and, you know, yeah. <laughs> go for a walk. All the rest balance. of it. Balance. Yeah. yeah. Balance is always, always the key. I think there's a whole heritage preservation arm of social media that, you know, that kind of thing that we could go down, but that's, that's potentially a rabbit hole. So we'll, we'll ignore that and, and just maybe say, share buildings that you want to preserve on social media and make yeah. sure that you get the word out and, and have people defend them. And, and, and all, like all you're saying, like the Midwestern modernism, that kind of thing makes, makes people care about things. And I think that's, that's important. So. Yeah, no, I agree. And lastly, you are working on another book. Yes. We have uh we have one of the biggest malls in the world here. Yeah, they sell it there. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is your reason for Edmonton. I know, I know. I meant I mentioned it in passing because, like, you can't write a mall book and not mention the West Edmonton Mall. But I haven't been there, and my mall excursions were severely curtailed by COVID nineteen. But yes, I have always been fascinated by the West Edmonton Mall. 
Um, I mean, are like, is it open? Are people going there? Did people miss it if it closed for the pandemic? <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's wide open for business. I mean, it's it's changed and things like that. And uh, I don't know, have you been to the Mall of America in? I haven't. That was one of my, I was supposed to go in April, 2020. I was actually going to do like a family field trip to the Mall of America. <laughs> and my kids are still mad that they didn't get to play Blacklight mini golf at the Mall of America. But one day, one day. But yeah. So that's, that, that, that's the vibe of West Edmonton Mall, I think. Uh, for, I, I haven't been to the mall either, but I've been, I've been in that area of the world. And I think it's actually very similar to Edmonton, that whole area of the world. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a whole amusement experience. It's I mean, on one hand, I absolutely hate it because it's it's um, we have like an abandoned LRT station, which is light rail uh, underneath the mall, which we never connected to. Yeah. And now they're building a train. I'm shaking out to my it. head. Yeah. 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 Finally, now they're building a train out to it, but they're not utilizing the underground station, which would have been very cool. But um, it, it's it's it reinforces the car need. In, in our cities, in our suburban cities, which I, which I don't love, but it's also in a place that's as cold as we are and it gets to like minus 40 for, you know, three weeks of the year, people still need to do things. And malls are, especially West Edmonton Mall, is the large, huge indoor social public space. It's, it's questionably public. You can technically go in, but are you going in there not spending any money? It's another question. So I think that there's, I think that there's incredible value in it. It's a shame that it's like the big public gathering spaces are consumer spaces, but. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would say if you go there on the weekend, it's going to be out of town people. Mm -hmm. And then if you go there during the week, that's usually when like people from the city would go. But I do know like for like older people, it's a great walking space in the winter. Because they're not going to slip on ice, they're not going to freeze, and they can get their steps in. <laughs> Which, you know, it wasn't intended for, but that's what it's being used for. Right, right. No, everything you just said is are, like, exactly the themes that I talk about in my book. That, like, yes, this is a car-dependent, this is a car-dependent typology, but it has taken on so many important, like, social, community, like, cultural roles over time that even though it's not a public space like if we withdrew like if we withdrew them all like there would be this tremendous outcry and there aren't really like public agencies that are like up to providing the same level of services for people so like there's just i think there's like just an ambivalent heart to the mall where it's doing so much and like it has so much cultural importance but on the other hand like we have to acknowledge like mall cops and that it's not truly a public space and that you have to drive a car to get there because um there was no light rail like you know in in older times often the like mall authorities would like not want the cities to put a bus stop in next to the mall because they like didn't want the type of people, quote unquote, who rode the bus to like access their mall. So yeah, like it can be good, it can be bad. But like for me, like writing the history of the mall, it was just really important to acknowledge both of those things. Because how can we move forward if we can't acknowledge all the things that the mall has become? And I think West Edmonton Mall being like so big and like kind of such a pioneer in like what I call very big malls, mm -hmm. um, like it has all of those like issues in spades. It's just like kind of ramped up to another level. Yeah. Like we have an amusement park with like three different roller coasters, yeah. and a water park with a wave pool, a pirate ship, a submarine. Like it's, it's absolutely yeah, the pirate, insane. The pirate mm -hmm. ship is always what snags my attention. Like I've read a lot of articles from the opening and I'm always like a pirate ship. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't think if you build one now, I don't think pirates have quite the same like hold on the popular imagination. But at one time, like I think, you know, my, my brother had a Playmobil pirate ship. That was one of his favorite toys. So at one time, like for kids, like pirates was like a key play pattern. And like, that's what the pirate ship was coming out of. Now all you get is hooligans jumping off into the water, getting escorted by mall security. But. There was also a fire-breathing dragon in the theater at one point or something. Like, it was yeah. Just crazy. yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, 
it's just so wild. Like there's a tremendous amount of creativity and inspiration that goes into making a place like that. And yeah. I have to respect that at a certain level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's, and I know you've, I know you've written a couple articles on uh, like teens and the pandemic yes. and, and what the heck they're supposed to do. And I think I, when I went to a mall recently, um, I, I tend not to go to malls anymore just just because I find other spaces to shop locally and those kinds of things, right? Malls are less that. But I, I, I remember my feeling like this used to be my home as a teenager. I used to come here all the time. This was the best space to get away from mom and dad and to hang out and spend $10 you had that day. Yeah. And I hope we don't yeah. lose that for teens. But Yeah. No, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but I have a whole chapter that's basically about the mall and different age groups, like the mall and children, the mall and teens, the mall and senior citizens, and how it provides this kind of safer city environment for people that like can't necessarily deal with all of the inputs and and like you know problematics of like the real city, you know, from like cracked sidewalks to just like a higher level of like danger from other adults and things like that. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Yeah, at one point I had thought about writing a book about teenagers, which didn't really go anywhere. And then I'm like in the middle of writing the wall book and I'm like, oh, I get to have an entire chapter about teenagers, I guess. Like, I'm just going to like get it all out in this space, which has been great and fun. Like I, I feel like teenagers are really kind of like underreported on in a lot of ways. And like, it's just so interesting to think about like my own adolescence and the adolescence that my kids are now entering um, and hearing other people's stories is always fun. Being a teen. Oh. Uh, I know I would not, I would not go back there for like a million dollars, but. <laughs> Sorry. When does your book come out? It comes out in um, June, 2022. June, I'm just, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm just finishing the copy edits now galleys will be available in January and then it'll be all like kind of leading up to it in the spring. Exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really a fun, I think it's a fun read. Like I tried to keep that energy, like the fun mall energy throughout (laughs) the history. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I know we're, we're a little bit over time, so I appreciate you sticking around. So nice to meet you, Alexandra. Thank you. Um, thank you. Bye. Special thanks on this episode to Jordan Ast for music, mixing, and mastering. The rest of the team includes Inkit Gongle, Tasina Ahmed, Cody Johnston, and myself, Stephanie Pollock. If this episode intrigued you, head over to your favorite podcast app and show us some love. If you want to learn more about MADE, who we are, what we're up to, and how you can help us out, head over to joinmade.org. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.